Luke chapter 18, beginning of verse 31. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we prepare to hear your word today, we come asking that you would give us a real hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we might be satisfied in you, that you would fill us, not with things of this world, but with your own self. God, cause our hearts to to beat with a strong desire to know you, to know your son, to know the power of his resurrection, even even when it means partaking of the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, cause our affections to be bent after Christ and his ways. Lord, we want to know him Uh, to know him more. Even as we are fully known, we want to know him more. Lord, we have not already obtained this. We're not already perfect, but we press on to to make it our own. By your grace, we seek even now uh, to press on to make it our own since Jesus himself has made us his own. Thank you, Lord, that we are his. God, grant us the grace this day to forget what lies behind, to strain forward to what lies ahead, toward the goal for the prize of of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We pray uh, that you would uh, be pleased by the attitude of our hearts toward your word. God, that we would come in a spirit of worship and reverence. Speak to us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we, are, before we begin to look at where we are headed, I want to remind you just briefly of, of where we have been. And if you just look back one verse in the section 
that precedes our passage for today at verse 30. Uh, You'll recall that Jesus has just issued this, this assurance to his disciples that there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more times in this, many, many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So he, he tells those that would come after him, he tells his disciples, his followers, that the path to glory, the path to life eternal, is one that takes us through this path of suffering and of loss of leaving behind a former way of living. And at many times and in many ways, Jesus has emphasized this to his followers and those who came after him, the other uh, writers of the epistles in the, the New Testament, they emphasize this very same thing, what Christians throughout all generations have experienced to various degrees, that it is through many afflictions or tribulations that we all enter the kingdom of God. No, no Christian is exempt from that. Through many afflictions, we enter the kingdom of God. Well, it's in the very next breath we see this great weight put upon the fact that this is not a path we trod alone. It's, it's not a path Christ calls us to walk by ourselves. When Christ calls his people to to take up their cross, he doesn't bid them walk alone. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. This is the path of our Savior, a life of loss and suffering and cross-bearing is a life bent after the pattern of our Savior. It's a life bent after what we see in Christ. And so Jesus takes the 12 aside here, uh, 11 of which who will experience a very strong measure of suffering and persecution. And he tells them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is now the seventh time that Jesus has predicted his sufferings. Many of your Bibles are going to have a heading that says something to the effect of Jesus foretells his death a third time. There's a sense in which that is true, but it doesn't account for the many other more oblique references to his sufferings and death that he's already alluded to in chapter 5 and in just the earliest days of his ministry. Already this is on his mind. Already this is burning in his consciousness. He is talking about days when the bridegroom would be taken away and they'll fast. His people will fast. They'll go into mourning. In chapter 12, he he talks about this baptism with which he had to be baptized with. Not not a, a water baptism the way we normally talk about baptism, but a baptism of sufferings and death. And, and he says there that he is under this great distress until it is accomplished. He was laid under great constraints from the earliest days of his ministry to see the mission that he was appointed to carry out accomplished. 
Chapter 13, he says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So you pull all of this together, and you, you see that the whole course of his life was shaped by obedience to the will of the Father, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is consumed with this purpose and this mission over and above everything else. And it's here, as we come to the end of chapter 18, that we see the Lord Jesus enter into the final stretch of his journey to Jerusalem, that journey that he began in chapter 9, where we see him setting his face like a flint to go to the holy city, to that final destination that had been ordained for him. Look with me at verse 31. It's so instructive to us. He says there, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. What I want, with the Spirit's help, to impress upon your hearts here, brothers and sisters, is for you to see that there is a plan. A divine plan is in place here. Nothing has been left to chance. Nothing that you're about to witness as you make your way through the end of this gospel is an accident. The counsel of God determined it. The prophets foretold it. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to accomplish it. And he knows that. This is the reason that he has come into the world. He knows that he is going to be treated with scorn and contempt. He is going to be falsely condemned. He will be hung up on a cross to die. And those who did it, they'll be held accountable. They will be held accountable by the Lord. But it was all according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God that it will happen, that this will all take place. And it's here in Luke 18, Jesus begins to survey some of the, the high points of the prophecies that have been foretold of him. He uh, reiterates uh, his prediction of his sufferings and death, and he elaborates on them with a level of detail that we haven't yet seen in this gospel account. Now, why is this important? There are many things that we could say, but let me just highlight three thoughts that rise to the surface before we examine what Jesus says. First, this demonstrates in unmistakable terms the price that was necessary to redeem our souls. And we sang just a few moments ago, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here it's guilt 
may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed son of man and son of God. Brothers and sisters, we're reminded in this passage that there's no amount of sorrow, there's no amount of contrition that we could ever express, there's no amount of good works that we could ever perform, there's no amount of self-amendment or self-reform that could ever make us right with God. A very religious life cannot do it, nothing less than the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could atone for our sins and make us right with the Father. Number two, it shows the love of Christ for hopeless sinners. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. By this we know love, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This text puts in bold the absolute fact that Christ did not go to Jerusalem unaware of what he would have to endure. He did not find himself in Gethsemane caught unawares by what he was about to do, by the fact that he would need to drink the cup of the Father's wrath to suffer the judgment of our sins. He did it for the souls of men and he did it out of love. We see the Savior's love for the souls of men here. And then third, it provides support to the faith of those that would believe and that have believed on him. As we look back, as we see that God is one who indeed makes good on his word. He uttered his voice through the mouth of the prophets and it has come to pass. We see the veracity of every word that he speaks that we can trust in him. We can lean upon his word. Every word of God proves proves true. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So dear ones, you whose whose faith like mine is often found weak and feeble and frail, set your sights today on the one who uttered these words. Set your sights on the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it can now be said, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets has been accomplished. It is finished. And let your faith be established and strengthened and renewed and steeled in your own trials and testings and sufferings and affliction. Now, With that in mind, let's look at Jesus' words beginning in verse 32. He says, therefore, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is, of course, a reference to the Roman authorities. First, Jesus would be given over to the hands of the, the Sanhedrin, and he would be there condemned to death. Uh, the Jewish authorities would render their verdict after which he would be delivered over to the Gentiles, the Roman authorities who would carry out the execution of Jesus Christ. So the whole city would be aligned against him, both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. 
the early disciples, uh, after the resurrection, they, they looked at this and they saw this, this fact as a fulfillment of passages like Psalm chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 4, right after Peter and John come back, you remember there where they're arrested and they're thrown into prison for proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But the, 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 the authorities there, their attempt at stymieing the evangelistic efforts of the early disciples are themselves stymied because people just keep going on believing. They keep believing in this good news of Jesus Christ. And so they release them from prison and say, okay, just go on your way. Don't talk or preach about it anymore. And they say, well, we, we cannot but preach about what we've seen and heard. We're, we will not remain silent. Well, it was after that. It was after Peter and John came back and they give uh, this report to b- the believers that, they all call this passage from Psalm 2 to mind. And they, they say together there, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're, they're looking at this now in past tense. And they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they raged and they plotted, but they did so in vain. They did it in vain. They didn't prevail. Praise God. We're getting a little bit of our head, ahead of ourselves here. It was at their hand, the hand of, of, of the Gentiles. Jesus says he will be mocked and shamefully treated. And spit upon. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 5, you find these words. These are spoken of the Messiah who was to come. It says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now notice first there that it says the Lord opened his ear. What is that implying? What is that teaching us? Again, Yahweh is speaking to his servant and is communicating his will. He is communicating a purpose and a plan for his servant. And what do we find in response? I was not rebellious. That's an emphatic way of of expressing the totality of his commitment to the will of the Father. I was obedient. I was not rebellious, is how he puts it here. As the Lord discloses his will to his servant, the servant in turn gives his whole will to the Lord in obedience. And we then come to learn what the Father's will for the servant entails, mocking, shameful treatment, humiliation. In Mark 
14 and verse 65, it says, Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him and in mock homage to the Savior. Matthew 26 and verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. And even when he hung from the cross, uh, the, the, the mocking and the The humiliation and the ridicule would continue. Soldiers offered up sour wine and they they placed an inscription over his his head reading, this is the king of the Jews. Some cried out, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And then Jesus says here, almost in passing, and, and after flogging him, after flogging him, again, Isaiah He prophesies, chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. In other words, he was beaten and scourged to the point that he was almost unrecognizable as a member of the human race, marred beyond human semblance. And after flogging him, they will kill him. After he was beaten, he was taken to a place called the skull, where nails were driven through his hands and his feet. He was hung between two thieves, where for three hours, He hung, bearing the judgment of the world, darkness covering the face of the earth until he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So you see the severity, the intensity of his sufferings for our sins. This was no little trial. He was treated with utter disgrace and contempt. And yet the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is precisely where Jesus takes us next. Christ's sufferings and death are not the end of the story. Praise the Lord. And on the third day, he will. Rise. There, there, there's a reason, dear ones, that there is an empty cross behind me and not a crucifix. There is a reason that there is not an image of Jesus hanging on the cross. There is a reason that we rejoice at the image of an empty tomb for the victory that it speaks of. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection. And the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What a hope. What glory we have 
What glory awaits those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And yet you can see here in this passage that so much of what Christ said was utterly lost on his disciples. In fact, all of it was, wasn't it? Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. Now, Luke makes it clear here that their lack of comprehension wasn't because Christ's words were unintelligible. It wasn't because of a lack of clarity on his part that they didn't understand, that they didn't believe. Neither was it because they were so dense that they just didn't get it. Sometimes the disciples get a bad rap. Uh, They are sometimes portrayed as just kind of a bunch of dimwits who can't manage to put heads or tails together out of anything. That's not the case. Look at what it says in verse 34. It says, This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now that tells us a couple of things. It tells us that there's at least a couple of different dynamics going on in this picture. At least two things are underscored. First, it demonstrates that their ability to, to spiritually perceive what Jesus was saying was dependent on more than their IQ. On more than just how smart or perceptive they were. This saying was hidden from them. That's what we call the divine passive. It tells us that it is by divine enablement that the truth of the gospel is revealed to the hearts of men. The Lord is the one who is sovereign in the opening up of hearts and minds. The saying, it says here, was hidden. It was veiled. The issue at hand wasn't that they simply couldn't hear. In fact, if you had asked them uh, to tell you what Jesus said that day, they surely could have given you a synopsis of, of, of the teaching. They could have related to you the words, the verbs, the nouns, the the sentence structure, the basic theme of what Jesus was saying. They could have told you what he said, but the import of his words, the significance, the eternal consequence of his words had not yet been impressed upon the heart. The significance was hidden. Second, while these Twelve can surely be counted as disciples and followers of Christ. We see here that their understanding of Christ's person and work isn't complete. It isn't full. Their, their comprehension, you could say, isn't comprehensive. They were true followers And yet at the same time, they had a long way to go in terms of their understanding of Jesus' person and work. They had some misunderstandings, didn't they? They saw him as a conquering king. Uh, They saw him or wanted him to be a 
a political figure. They saw him as a triumphant savior, and they struggled to see how an agonizing death could possibly fit into the economy of God for the promised Messiah. You see, they they had a scheme worked out in their minds of how things should go, of how the Savior was supposed to carry things out. And this didn't fit. This didn't fit into their, their mindset. So they were Christ followers, but there were blind spots. There was ignorance. There were areas of incomprehension and confusion in their hearts and minds. In that way, perhaps, brothers and sisters, there's some encouragement for us. Some encouragement and some fodder for humility in our hearts, in our thinking, in what we presume to know, in how we regard wherever we think we might fall in terms of Christian maturity. We too do not grasp all that God in Christ is up to. You may be a disciple of Jesus Christ and yet yourself be scratching your head at the working of your ways. You may find yourself today in the throes of some ordeal and wonder to yourself, how in the world does this fit into the the economy of God? How can this possibly be what he has for me? I don't know how to reconcile this with what I understand to be true of God. This isn't at all what I thought the Christian life was supposed to look like. This makes me think of Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 2 where it talks about the, the, the high priest of the Old Testament chosen from among men. And it says there that even they, even the high priests, were ignorant and wayward, beset with weakness. Brothers and sisters, are you prepared to admit that of yourself? Are you prepared to admit that in many ways we actually all remain ignorant and wayward? You remember what Jesus said to the two on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection? He says to these believing, yet confused, discouraged, downcast disciples, Oh, foolish ones! Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? We may have a true and saving knowledge of Christ and yet find many opportunities to pray with Paul, for example. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You see, he's praying that for people like us. He's praying that for believers, that the eyes of our hearts 
would be enlightened, that we would come to know more of God, more of the working of his ways. Now we move at this point from sighted men who cannot see to a blind man who sees far more than you might imagine. Jesus is drawing near to Jericho. He is now only about 17 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. This is not the Jericho of Joshua chapter 6. Little ones, you remember Joshua the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. That, that Jericho was destroyed. In, f- in fact, it was laid under a divine curse. If anyone ever had the idea of trying to rebuild it again. Uh, This is a new city that goes by the same name. It's just about a a mile south of the original city. And as Jesus draws near to that town, he encounters this blind man sitting by the roadside begging. The gospel according to Mark tells us his name. Uh, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And this man sits by the road. No doubt he is hoping to benefit from the kindness of pilgrim worshipers who are headed up to Jerusalem. Now, that might be a little confusing to you. Jerusalem is south of Jericho, but Jerusalem sits on a hill. That's why you can be coming from the north and still go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem, uh, geographically speaking because of how it's situated. Well, it's often said that those who are blind or who have lost another one of their senses tend to have their other senses more finely tuned. And you, you see something of that here. There's this great crowd traveling by and hearing the commotion, it says that he inquired what this meant. He knows there's something more going on than just your ordinary band of travelers. He wants to know what this means. Now, I want you to pay close attention to how the report goes, how how the answer to his question goes, and then to how he responds in turn. It's very significant. The crowd reports, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The one born to Joseph and Mary, Jesus the carpenter, is passing by. Now you remember how on another occasion someone says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet, in this man's heart, those words signal so much more. As soon as those words come to his ears, what does he do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To Bartimaeus, this man is not just Jesus, son of Nazareth. He is Jesus, son of David. In other words, he is the one. He is the one the prophets have foretold and that the people of God have longed for. The long-awaited Messiah, the promised king, David's son, and David's Lord. 
passing by him is the one God had promised to David so long ago that would be raised up after him, the throne of which would be established forever and ever. And all of this, this blind man perceives. He perceives with the eyes of faith. So the striking thing about all of this is that this man can see before he can see. When it comes to what really counts, Bartimaeus already beholds the most precious, most beautiful thing a man can ever behold. Jesus, the son of David, the savior of the world. He is physically blind, but spiritually speaking, he can see. He can see. And so when he cries out for mercy, this is not your ordinary cry. This is not your ordinary plea for compassion, the kind that a a beggar might offer up to any old passerby. And you can see that in his sheer desperation and relentlessness. Just as they did with the little children, those around Jesus begin to rebuke the man. Like, self-appointed bodyguards. They say, enough of you. Be quiet. The big guys up front, they continue to be darkened in their understanding. In terms of the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, they do not recognize the fact that this man represents precisely the kind of people that the Lord Jesus Christ delights to welcome in to his presence. This is his very mission to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind. This is why he came. It's why he came into the world. And yet in their ignorance, they tell the man to keep silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Another unexpected juxtaposition here, this poor A blind man on the margins of society dares to call on the one who sits on David's throne. The one who comes forever to reign. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. Have mercy on me. That's the audacity of faith. You call on the name of Jesus Christ. So you know you have no worthiness. Nothing to offer. Nothing to barter with but you know the kind of king he is. And so you call. You call, nevertheless. This man is unembarrassed by his condition. Never mind the fact there's this large crowd of people standing around gawking at you. Never mind the fact that there are those who would belittle you or try to hold you back. Did he tuck his tail between his legs and slink away? No, he knows his need. And he knows his king. And both are there together. Now can you say the same today? Do you know your need? Do you know your need for mercy? And do you know the king? Do you know the king, Jesus Christ? Where do you go for help? Who do you run to and cry out to for refuge and grace and help 
in time of need? Have you cried and do you continue to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me? You see, brothers and sisters, even Christians are ones who go on crying, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. This is not a one-time cry. Those who can see as this man saw continue to lift up cries such as this in view of our continual need for mercy and cleansing and forgiveness and healing and the compassion of our Savior. Verse 40 tells us that Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped and commanded this man to be brought to him. Now, there are going to be those, as Jesus continues to make this journey, who will try to intervene and stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem. There will be disciples who just don't get it. There will be men like Peter who, when Jesus again insists that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, they will take Jesus aside and say, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus will have to look Peter in the eyes and say, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. He will not be interrupted. He will not be stopped. But when this man cries to the Lord, when this man cries out for mercy, Jesus stops. Jesus hears him. He hearkens his ear to his voice. What does that tell you about our Lord? What does that tell you about the one we worship? The Lord Jesus has time for those who are in need of mercy. The Bible says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jesus calls the man to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. He asked of the Lord what no mere man could ever do for him. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, church, Jesus shows mercy. He has compassion on those who call on his name. Those who put their trust in him will find him responding to their need. He says, your faith has made you well. Literally, it says, your faith has saved you. Here you have a picture of a man who, through no act of his own, is brought from darkness to light. Again, I would just put before you today, have you seen Christ? Not with your natural eyes, but with the eyes of faith. With the eyes of the heart. Have you come to see your need and see the King? See the one who came to suffer and to die in the place of guilty sinners so that your sin could be washed away through faith alone in Christ alone. Then you see this man's response. What does he do next? Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. He followed him. I want to read from Mark's 
account of the same story. In Mark's gospel, it records Jesus as saying, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Did you catch it? Let me read that to you again. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. In other words, Jesus' way had now become his way. He left his old life behind in favor of a new life, a new life of discipleship and of following the Lord, all the while glorifying the Lord, giving glory to the one who had saved him, worshiping the Lord for his goodness and faithfulness and love. And the same was true with all the people. You see, God's people are people who delight to see the greatness and the power of God on display wherever it's on display. We are those who rejoice in the compassion and power and mercy of God towards sinners. Wherever it is made manifest, wherever we see that, our hearts ascend upwards in praise to his name. So let us do that today. We have so much to praise God for.